Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fair Data Podcast, where we discuss all things fair, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the Fair Data Podcast, and my guest today is Martin Donnelly, Manager, Funder Relations, Open Science at the Royal Society of Chemistry. Martin, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Rory. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. So you've been involved in research data management in a variety of roles for a number of years, and I believe you actually wrote a book chapter about data management planning way back in 2012. So I think it's fair to say you qualify as a pioneer in the field. What got you interested in data management in the first place? Uh, Well, um, yeah, I've been... (laughs) Half of life is just showing up, uh, I think, as Woody Allen said. Um, so um, I, um, my, my first um, job after my master's degree was in cultural heritage computing um, at the University of Glasgow, where I worked with uh, Seamus Ross. Um, so I, I uh, initially worked on um, a European project called DigiCult, about you know, digital culture, um, and uh, did some um, assessments of the suitability and the applications of emerging technologies um, for um, the cultural heritage sector. Um, And that led to other um, uh, roles that were more focused on digital preservation. Um, And then data management emerged as um, as, as sort of the next big thing. And at that time, I was working for the Digital Curation Center, um, just at the time when they were pivoting from digital preservation as you would sort of understand it, you know, um, in its traditional sense, if you like, to data management and data curation. Um, so it was a kind of natural progression from culture heritage computing to digital preservation and then to uh, data management and curation. Okay, so your own kind of personal um, shift in that direction coincided with a uh, with a DCC shift. So actually, I've I've done a lot of things with the DCC over the years, but I've never really known much about the, their, the DCC's formation and development. And, and you were just alluding to this shift that took place. Could you, could you tell us a bit about uh, just about the DCC, how, how it got started and then, and then how it shifted into, uh, into more uh, curation and management? So I wasn't um, involved at the very beginning of the DCC um, uh, from, from memory um, because I was working at Glasgow University, which was a partner in it, um, it was led by, or at least the scoping study or the pilot or whatever it was called, was led by Edina at Edinburgh University. Uh, people like Peter Burnhill, who was the director of Edina, and Robin Rice, who I then went on to work for um, at, uh, at Edinburgh in the library. Um, so yes, um, it originated in um, the digital preservation community. And it had interests, well, there were partners where Edinburgh, Glasgow and Bath universities and also STFC, the Science Technologies Facilities Council uh, down in uh, in Swindon, well, Oxfordshire, I think, actually. Um, and the, the, those four partners had interests in digital preservation. Some had a, a, an interest from an archiving point of view, some from a librarian point of view, some from a technological Point of view, like the the, the technological um, and, and process driven um, archive stuff, like OEIS, for example. Um, and then, as data became more important, it was Liz Lyon at Bath who 
produced a report called Dealing with Data, which recommended things like the production of data management plans. Um, and at that point, the DCC began to pivot away from digital preservation in the traditional sense of you know preserving journal articles or, or, or things like that, and to have a specific um, concentration and interest in uh, in research data. So was that was that shift was that I'm just curious that's a pretty fundamental shift and and was it was it stimulated by changes in 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 technology or changes in in thinking or you know what 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 was behind the shift because that's it, quite interesting I think it was really the development of the the research data conversation because what <laughs> what actually happened was I worked a little bit for the DCC when I worked, when I was at the University of Glasgow, and maybe the DCC was a year or two years old at that point, and I left when I moved to Edinburgh, and in fact, I, I was out of the um, the digital preservation, data management, scholarly comms world for a couple of years. I actually worked at Edinburgh College of Art when it was an independent um, organisation for a couple of years, and then returned to the DCC at the University of Edinburgh. And in, in the time between me leaving and coming back, um, digital preservation was sort of, I mean, it was still important, obviously, digital preservation is, is, is vital when it comes to long-term data management and data curation. Um, but there, there, there was this more of a focus. And as I said, I think that was um, uh, driven in, in large part by Liz Lyon's consultancy report on dealing with data. Um, that the, 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 the pivot had already begun and I wasn't there <laughs> I wasn't there when when the decisions were taken or um, I certainly wasn't senior enough to have been in the room when uh, uh, those kind of strategic decisions were taken but you know reading the tea leaves um, I, I think that Liz's report was really quite important um, and obviously there were um, the director at the time was Chris Rushbridge and he was very um, passionate about um, uh, about research data I remember once uh, when I just just rejoined the DCC, but I was at this point a member of staff of Edinburgh rather than Glasgow University. Um, Chris sending me to an internal meeting at Edinburgh University and saying, "Right, go out there and bang the drum for data." And I was kind of like, "I've got no idea what that means," um, because I I, <laughs> I was returning to an organisation that had changed a little bit in the in the two and a half years since I'd been away. Yeah, interesting. So, <clears throat> kind of turning to your your some of the themes that, I, as far as I can tell, run through your your career so far, and, and one which seems to be consistent is the importance of, of training, whether that's in training in good data management practices or good software practices. So how has your thinking about training evolved over the years? Yeah, um, so I, I kind of think that a lot of what I have done isn't so much training as it's advocacy. And, and I think that, that, that that's really, really important is that I I have trained people to do things, um, but more often I've um, trained people to think about things in a different way, um, or try to um, make the case for, for example, um, you know, um, responsible research data management or um, preservation of software as an integral component of the scholarly record. So um, I, I think that I'm more of a um, of an advocate than a trainer as such. So you know, obviously, I've been trained myself in things like um, Prince Two, for example, and that that's training somebody to pass a test, and then after you've passed the test, you can actually get down and learn how to 
use the the materials. Um, but I was never involved in that sort of thing. Um, I, I, but I do think that advocacy um, and um, um, making the case, you know, and demonstrating the value of things um, is is really important because initially I would have, uh, you know, when I was doing what we would call training in the digital curation centre, we'd say, oh, wouldn't it be great if, um, if, if everyone did great data management and other people could benefit from your work? Um, and that, you know, um, it, it, that sort of pay it forward approach, I don't think is entirely convincing. It is to, you know, lovely altruistic people, but, um, you know, academics and researchers are very time poor um, and altruism is usually the first thing sort of to go out of the, <laughs> of the window mm. um, when, when they're um, trying to um, scowl about for the next uh, research grant. So I think it's really important that when, when you're doing that sort of advocacy or training, depending on what you want to label it, um, that you um, that you're able to demonstrate, you know, um, to, to quote facts and figures and to prove what you're saying, as opposed to the, uh, something a bit more kind of airy fairy. Yeah, interesting. So that actually, on the training, let me um, let me ask a question. Um, I never I never mince words in this pro- podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say, um, but there's there's now, of course, if you fast forward to 2022, there's a huge movement to training of data stewards and research data management, a professionalization of the, of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, you know, the, of that job category, if you will, which is fantastic in a way, but I also am worried that the, and then people produce training modules, but this, this, the, the, the concept and the tools and the environment are so dynamic and changing rapidly that I'm concerned that, you're going to get these training modules and the, and people can say, Oh yes, I've got my certificate, which is good, but actually they're being trained in, in yesterday's technologies and yesterday's environment. And so I, so I have a question is how do you, how do you keep the dynamism uh, in there in the training? To me, that's critical. Otherwise the training is going to end up being, um, not counterproductive, but it's going to you know lose as much as it gains, if you will. Uh, how how do you react to that? Uh, maybe perhaps bold statement. No, I I understand it, and it's the same. Uh, it's the same in any um, fast-moving uh, environment, be it um, you know technology, for example. If you're like a, a web developer, you know you, um, maybe you um, studied web technologies at university 15, 20 years ago because that was when courses were, were first beginning to, to come through. Now, um, being able to say that you um, were, were um, an expert in Dreamweaver is not going to cut the mustard uh, anymore. So it, it, um, I think that from a training point of view, and this speaks to, I think this kind of um, um, underlines the point that I was making earlier, is that if you're teaching people about um, or, or helping to show them uh, the the um, the benefits and sort of thematic uh, to, to helping people to think about what they're doing then that's a skill that doesn't um, that doesn't age and become obsolete you know um, if you are if you get a firm grounding in the principles of something then that's that, that that that's the main thing and then all of the specific technologies well not all of them but many of them are kind of detail you know um, like whether 
you uh, let's say you're um, training somebody to be a data steward um, now the data repository whether it's um, uh, whether it's dspace or whether it's you know some other uh, thing that's detail but the principles of um, of good data management transcend um, the specific technologies so I, I do understand what you're saying and, 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 and indeed there are things that come up there are technologies that come along and, and change the game altogether like cloud computing for example um, which which um, re removed the need for thinking too much about backup and just being assured that for example backup was being taken care of by either your institution or by a third party service and and and, and suddenly um, it was it was not something that you needed to do manually so that's that's a bit of a game changer because it um, um, it, it, it frees you to, to to do other things I remember in my first job every Friday I would back up to an external hard drive which I'd then take home in case there, in case there was a um, a fire in the building because there had been a fire in the building across the road at the university um, so I would back my stuff up and I was prepared to lose up to a week's worth of work that would be kind of intolerable now. Yeah. Okay. Great. Interesting. So another another game changer, I think, is is uh, is data management plans. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about that for a bit. You, you you wrote the DCC's original checklist for a data management plan, and then conceived and and project managed the first three iterations of DMP Online. And I believe you are also a founder member of the steering group of of DMP Tool. So that pioneering work has taken on even more significance in light of the, the recent emergence of DMP tools as really a second core data management planning resource alongside data repositories. So tell us a bit about the, the early days and how the concept evolved. Sure. So, so I didn't solely write the checklist for data management plan. Um, I, I co-wrote it with Sarah Jones, but there was lots and lots of consultation uh, internally and externally, so it wasn't it wasn't a solo album by any means. Um, so yeah, well, we, um, we we almost didn't build DMP online. Um, it was a, um, a I think DMP online had its tenth anniversary last year, um, and I spoke at the at the the anniversary do, uh, which was obviously because it was during COVID, which was online. Um, and and I, I sort of scurried back to my old files to sort of figure out the timeline, and I found an internal document that said, um, you know, um, develop checklist for a data management plan. That was a must-have, um, which Sarah and I did. And then there was um, uh, create online equivalent of, of data management planning checklist, and then in brackets it was like, if time allows or something like that. So so if if we hadn't managed to get the checklist written, um, quickly enough, the DMP online would never have existed. So w initially, DMP online was a bit of an afterthought. We thought people would work from paper-based, well, not paper-based, but you know, word document-based checklists. Um, and then, unfortunately, because we were very thorough uh, with the checklist, and because um, each of the questions in the checklist was designed to be fairly atomic, that you wouldn't ask about, you know. What is the um, size and format of your data set? You would ask two questions. What is the size of your data set? And what is the format of your data set? You know, is it an Excel spreadsheet? Is it SQL? Is it, you know, anything like that? So that, that meant that there were over 100 questions. And even though very few projects would need to answer all 100 of them, the researchers still saw this long document and 
uh, became um, <laughs> fearful. Um, so what we did was we um, created DMP online to uh, guide researchers through the process without presenting them with information or, um, or without asking questions that weren't relevant to them. So we, um, we, we, we mapped this generic checklist to each of the individual research funders' data-related requirements. Um, so we weren't asking the exact question. We were mapping um, for our generic checklist to a specific funder's requirements. Um, that approach wasn't universally popular. So we ended up basically just uh, DMP Online became um, a, um, a venue for serving up the verbatim um, data management requirements from each funder, uh, but then presenting guidance uh, next to it. And it's the guidance that became uh, the, the, the real kind of added value of DMP Online. Um, or in, in initially, because you could have guidance from the funders themselves where they had explanatory notes and things like that, but you could also have guidance from your institution. So um, if um, you worked, to, uh, if you were a researcher at Edinburgh University, um, you would, uh, on a, working on a Natural Environment Research Council plan, you would get their guidance and then you would also get University of Edinburgh guidance saying, if you have an issue with this, come and talk to this person or email research data at ed.ac.oc or something like that. Um, so, so, so that's how that kind of developed. And um, we launched DMP online in 2010. Um, and we presented about it at the, um, at the International Digital Curation Conference in Chicago in December of that year. And, and in the run up to that, I was approached by a couple of colleagues in the United States um, who were um, interested in this because the National Science Foundation in the States had just um, announced with very little detail and little guidance a data management planning requirement. So they went onto the internet and Googled data management plans because there was no um, that there was no prescription as to what a data management plan should look like at that stage by the NSF. And they found us and they saw that we were coming to um, to Chicago that year. Um, you know, uh, literally a couple of months later, and they said, "Right, we're coming to this conference, and we'd love to talk to you." And that's that's how that kind of got underway. Um, we, we, um, that conference was this kind of um, focal point that, that began the DMP tool. And then further down the line, after I had, um, I, I had ceased to be involved uh, you know, so closely with DMP online, the two, um, the two tools ended up merging their code base. And it has grown you know, arms and legs from, um, from um, how it was uh, way back in, in 2010 when it was really just me and Sarah and um, a developer called John. <laughs> there, are, there are now lots of developers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so excellent. So, so now you're at the Royal Society of Chemistry and you have what to me is an intriguing title, Manager of Funder Relations, Open Science. Uh, before we get into that, and I'm looking forward to getting into it, uh, tell us a bit about your transition from the, the DCC Edinburgh to, to the um, Royal Society of Chemistry. They're obviously very different kinds of organizations with different missions. Uh, so, yeah. So what's it been like? That, that's right. So um, one of the last um, projects that I worked on at the DCC 
I was at the DCC for 10 years and I thought that it was probably time for um, uh, for, for a change. Um, also, this is ironic, but at the time uh, I had a young child and uh, I was traveling more than I really wanted to. And then, you know, within a couple of years, I wasn't traveling at all because nobody was traveling at all. Um, but I finished up at the DCC uh, working on a, pro- a European project called FOSTER, which was about f- um, fostering open science um, uh, abilities and and um, you know sympathies and things like that, in uh, particularly in early career researchers, and that involved a lot of going around Europe um, and um, presenting Foster's um, resources, uh, and also d- doing the advocacy thing that uh, that I, I I was you know frequently doing um, with the DCC. So I went to places like Cyprus and Latvia and Slovenia and. Um, Lithuania and a bunch, a bunch of countries, um, and d- doing that kind of um, advocacy work for open science. So that 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 was very much an interest of mine. Uh, I, 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 having concentrated on data for, I don't know, maybe the first eight or so years of my career at the DCC, I became more interested in uh, in other aspects of open science, like publications. Um, which takes me back to the sort of digital preservation stuff, but then into what I think is the next link in the in the scholarly communications uh, chain, which is research software. Uh, and you were talking earlier about um, career paths and things for for data stewards. There's a really really important and um, uh, growing movement towards the professionalisation and accreditation of research software engineers, uh, and that's something that's um, being driven by um, the Software Sustainability Institute, mm-hmm. and towards the end of my my time at the at the DCC, um, I uh, was lucky enough to be awarded a a Software Sustainability Institute fellowship. So that helped me to um, to, to learn more about software preservation and to um, and to think more about the way in which it um, um, the way in which it worked together with. Uh, data management and um, um, and publications, you know, journal articles and things like that, to produce a robust and and holistic scholarly record. So that became quite important for me. So after I left the DCC, I, I worked for a couple of years, just under three years, at the University of Edinburgh, where I managed the research data management team, um, and that was based in the library. That was more internally focused, which is kind of what I wanted at the time. Um, to be in Edinburgh and not to be, you know, often <laughs> Cyprus and Latvia and Lithuania and places like that, um, quite so much. Although I loved it, it just wasn't um, working for me in my personal life at the time. Um, and then um, I decided to leave Edinburgh University and took a, a role, which was a, a new role. So there was no roadmap for it. That was that was quite a challenge at the Royal Society of Chemistry. Um, now a, a lot of people have commented on, you know, the difference between you know, working at a university or in a academic environment, which the DCC was, to working for um, a publisher. But it's it, for for me, it's not that different. It is quite different because the the environment is different, but the conversations are the same, and the, the overall goal, as far as I'm concerned, is the same, which is to do the best and the right thing for research and for science. Um, so, so my job um, at the RSC. Um, has an open science focus, 
um, and um, it, it's, it's, it's about improving the quality of dialogue between the RSC as not only a publisher, but as a learned society. And I think that's quite an important distinction. But when I, um, when I saw this job advertised, um, I, my initial thought was, oh, I don't want to work, work for a publisher. You know, they're all demons and things like that. Um, and, and then um, I, I looked into the organization a bit more and realized that I, I didn't have a great understanding of the, the publishing world, in particular, the not-for-profit um, um, scholarly um, society-based publishers, um, which are very much different in terms of their raison d'etre than um, for-profit publishers. Um, and, uh, and, and I thought, okay, well, there, there's an opportunity here to improve understanding between um, the different stakeholders from the funders uh, who fund the research, the institutions where it takes place, uh, and then to the publishers where um, uh, it's presented to the world and, and um, looked after for the longer term. Um, so that's, that takes us back to the, the, the curation and long-term preservation aspect. A lot of people think um, that you know all publishers do is typeset um, some text as a PDF and put it on the internet, but there is far, far more to it uh, than that. And that, that there's a, there's an advocacy and there's a, <laughs> there's an awareness raising uh, opportunity there um, to say you know, you know um, that, that there's uh, a, a lot more um, to publishing than that. I mean, you could put a PDF on the internet and it will be probably be there in a year or two years, but it won't be there in 10 years. So it certainly won't be there in 20 years. And we're talking about the long-term scientific record. It's really important that that's preserved, access is preserved, and that um, services around it are uh, enabled so that people can um, reproduce or seek to reproduce findings, assure themselves of the quality, check things 10 years later and see if they still work. All that kind of stuff is vital. Um, so I, I guess because I've been in you know the scholarly comms world in one way or another for about twenty years, I've got this longer longer view of things than I did uh, when I was younger. So you you do get uh, I, I still think I'm a bit of an idealist, but you get real idealists who think oh we'll just put PDF, you know we'll just put preprints everywhere, and that's not the answer either. I mean preprints are great, but they have to be taken. Uh, in context and with a pinch of salt because the amount of scientific misinformation that gets out there without responsible gatekeeping or without responsible description is quite worrying, especially in, you know, times like, um, times of pandemic. Hmm. So, so, um, yeah, that's really interesting. So for the, what, what, so you're dealing with funders, what is that people, you know, funders like welcome and, and yeah. um, BBSRC is, is that is that what that means? And and what what's the uh, kind of focus of or what are some of the main themes in your conversations with them? So so, so the the relationship between funders and publishers has traditionally, when it comes to open access, has traditionally been quite antagonistic. I would say um, that um, publishers, and I'm talking about all publishers here, want to maximise their profits. Um, and um, and funders want everything to be open and you know zero embargo and, and things like that. Now um, and, and some of the larger publishers, the for-profit publishers, you know that that that's been an accurate characterization, I would say. Now we at the Ross Society of Chemistry and our colleagues in like the Society Publishers Coalition, we don't operate for-profit. Um, we we make a surplus on our publishing activities. 
uh, and that's reinvested into the community, in our case, this chemical sciences community, to uh, to train um, uh, researchers, to provide travel grants, to run campaigns on things like diversity and inclusion, uh, all sorts of what I would characterise as, as, as really virtuous and worthwhile um, stuff. So um, the, the, the perception that I had when I saw the job, i.e., I don't want to work for a publisher, um, that, that is still fairly prevalent among funders. They don't differentiate between the, the massive for-profit publishers and the smaller ones who are, you know, who use publishing in order to, um, in, in order to enhance and serve their communities. Um, so my, my job is to it's twofold. It's described, you know, it's, I've got funder relations for open science, so that's half of it. That's the external facing part. So I liaise with UKRI and JISC because they're the kind of executive bit of UKRI when it comes to implementing the um, open access policy from UKRI and um, organisations like Coalition S, which which have um, done a great deal to speed up the process of transitioning to uh, open access. But at the same time, I have an internal role at the RSC, which is almost to be the angel on the shoulder um, and um, and say, oh, you know, why aren't we doing more on data availability statements? Um, mm. what, what can we do in terms of encouraging software preservation, um, things like that? Now, it's a bit like I, I'm a sort of it's drip, drip, drip approach because um, th- things don't change um, very quickly, and there's lo- there's got to be lots of careful consultation, things like that, with the communities. And there's no this is another thing I've learned. There's no one size fits all approach, even within the RSC, because each journal has an editorial board and different editorial staff, um, and some of them are more conservative than others. The the, act- the discipline of chemistry has actually been quite traditionalist in its approach to open access, never mind the rest of open science. Um, but part of my uh, job is to try and advocate for um, more open approaches. Um, and that's not just within open access and uh, and open data and open software, but also within, um, uh, you know, um, transparent peer review, things like that, which, which um, I've got colleagues, um, for example, Nicola, Nicola Nugent, um, at the RSC, who's the who's our sort of ethics um, guru, and 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 we're, so we're always looking to do the right thing when it comes to things like um, a responsible approach to transparent peer review, to um, enabling people to change their names to reflect their identity um, if that has uh, changed over time. Uh, all that kind of stuff is is um, uh, an area where where we work together with our. our other colleagues in, in in other society and learned society publishers to um, to try and you know make the world a better place. And in fact, part of the RSC's the RSC's purpose is to support the chemical sciences communities to make the world a better place. Yeah, great. Let, let me ask you something, which is uh, it probably doesn't sound like it's actually at the heart of your role, but um, it, it's a, to me it's a topic of interest. So. Because you, because of your initial, your early focus on data and data management plans, you've got, you've got a, you know, heavy, very heavy grounding and in those areas and thoughts on those. So, in terms of the, from a publisher's point of view, um, like the RSC, for example, how does, how does, how did data management plans 
and and data data that's going to be used in connection with the publication how do they fit into thinking at, at RSC are they kind of an afterthought are they are they important or and how, how, how do you how do you incorporate those into the into the publishing workflow so they're, they're not an afterthought in, in any sense uh, we have um, dedicated team on uh, on, on data uh, led, led by my colleague Richard Kidd um, and what publishers did, uh, you know, in the early days of um, the expectation that data would be shared was they would just stick it in a PDF uh, and, and have it as supplementary information. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Berners-Lee's five stars of open data. Um, the, the, the first star, so, you know, you, you've, you're, you're, you're beginning your journey towards open data, is just to put a PDF on the internet. So technically the, the information was there, but as you know, PDF formatting is horrible. Um, and um, they're not particularly, uh, the, the information isn't that useful. You may have to rekey it um, into a spreadsheet or something like that for no reason other than it was just lazily put up there rather than put into a data repository and linked to. So PDFs are not great. Um, it's far better if they're in um, an Excel spreadsheet. Or that, that's the second star. The third star would be if it was in a, um, a completely open format and, you know, Excel is a, is a quasi-open format, um, but if you put it in um, comma-separated values, for example, that would be um, a completely open um, format. So um, uh, in, encouraging uh, people to use data repositories that are there, um, and, and we have data assets at, at, um, um, at the RSC, um, is, is, is quite important, and, and enabling researchers to... Um, meet their funder requirements. That's something that's important to us as well. Now, it's not as easily said, um, um, but sorry, it's easier said than done uh, because, I mean, our community is international, um, and um, but we have a single submissions and production interface for journal articles. Uh, and obviously, we, we, you know, we, we go beyond journal articles because um, we have we're, we're partners in Chem Archive, which is a preprint server. Uh, there's the Chem Spider database and, and, and things like this. But I'm just thinking specifically about articles. Um, we have to um, have um, a workflow that um, doesn't discriminate against people from different countries. So although we're a UK-based publisher and the UKRI is a very important funder to us. Uh, and the UK, you know, chemical sciences communities are a very important community for us. About 40% of the research that we publish comes from China, where the drivers around, um, the, the, the drivers of research culture, if you like, are quite different, uh, and funder requirements are quite different. So, for example, in China, in, in, in the UK and Europe and, and, you know, a lot of the Western um, uh, hemisphere, we've been moving to uh, away from things like impact factors because um, everyone has signed up to DORA, the Declaration on um, Research Assessment. Um, but in China, there's still a massive culture of um, tracking impact factors and looking to be um, published in the highest impact journal. So we have to balance all of this stuff. But, you know, it's the, what's happening in Europe is not by any means what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, so it, 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 it's a balancing act and we, that, that's why we don't, we can't move as quickly as sometimes uh, I, I would like us to because we have to consider, you know, I, I, a lot of my conversations are in the UK and Europe 
uh, and and uh, you know North America. Um, but it's very important to remember that that is just a piece mm. of the a piece of the puzzle and not the entire puzzle in itself. Okay, that's really interesting. But actually, maybe pick up on that theme as well. In 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 what what's going to be my last question, um, which is you know looking back and looking ahead in the past. 10 years research data management has been transformed from an undeveloped niche concept to a core element of the research process that impacts everything from funding to planning to infrastructure to the way research is carried out to data preser- preservation and reuse and to publishing. So um, and you've just kind of thrown a, a really interesting uh, curveball in terms of, of differential international development. Um, but what do you see as maybe one or two of the the main developments that are likely to emerge in the next five years? Um, I, I, AI is going to be massive. Um, it, it, it's, it's already a, a big thing, but that, you know, uh, AI feeds on machine readable data. Um, and uh, in order to, um, in order for that to, um, not just machine readable data, but, but text as well. Um, so text mining, data mining, um, sort of feed into AI, um, and I, I think that's going to be really important. But another thing that's really important about about that is not just freely enabling everything to be crawled and aggregated and um, abridged or summarized and things like that, because I, I really think that it's vital that there are regulations or policies and you know, accepted good practice around that because otherwise we risk a sort of um, <laughs> a, a, an AI dystopia. Um, and, and, you know, businesses, um, the, the, the private sector will, you know, have always looked to benefit from um, and utilise the fruits of the public research environment. Um, and... So I, I think it's really important that we think very carefully about access licensing um, of uh, of valuable um, content, so that it's uh, it's not just kind of plundered um, by by corporations, but rather that the fruits of publicly funded research benefit the public. Now, that is a big, big issue, is um, a big question. And we do need governments who are responsible and sympathetic. And I am not holding my breath there, but I live in hope. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, Martin. This has been really interesting. And uh, um, as always, for me, informative and educational. And and I, I learned a lot. And um, I always kind of have a sense of some things I might learn from from the person I'm speaking with, and it's almost always the case that I do learn those things, but I learn a lot more as well. So it's been it's been fascinating for me, and I'm sure for the listeners as well. So thank you so much for that inspiring conversation. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for having me, Rory, and go Celtics. <laughs> go Celtics! Great, great. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by fairdatapodcast.org and produced by Maroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Fair Data Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, and 5 p.m. Central European Time, and midnight in Japan. 
My guest next week is someone whose name came up on the uh, in the conversation today, Robin Rice, data librarian and head of research data support services at the University of Edinburgh. See you then.